hello everyone and welcome to another edition of the Green Minds podcast. I'm Jimmy Batho and I'm your host again this week. We've got an extremely interesting conversation lined up today as we talk to AP Ventures, a venture capital firm which focuses on hydrogen. We're going to split the conversation up and talk obviously about hydrogen, talk about why it's such a hot topic, but also as this is the first um, venture capital firm we've had on the podcast, also spend a bit of time delving into actually venture capitalism um, and the kind of investment process. Um, so before we introduce AP Ventures, I'm also joined by another co-host this week. Um, Rebecca Flowers is my friend from the CCMF course. So Rebecca, over to you to introduce yourself. Thank you, Jamie. Um, so as Jamie said, my name is Rebecca, and I will start off by admitting that this is my first time co-hosting a podcast, let alone in a topic where I have very much joined and participated because of curiosity rather than expertise. Um, so if I fumble or mumble, that's uh, that's why. Um, but as Jamie said, my name is Rebecca. Um, I have a background in business management, um, but a strong passion for environmental sustainability and the interface between those two topics. Um, and I'm incredibly excited to have, as Jamie said, uh, AP Ventures joining us today. Um, and I think I will stop talking already and let our wonderful guests introduce themselves. So maybe we can start off with a bit of an introduction to your background and then how you ended up at AP Ventures. So Andrew, maybe if you wanna start and talk a little bit about how AP Ventures also came to be in that story. Great, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Andrew Hinckley. Um, and we're delighted to be here today. And thank you very much for the invitation to talk about uh, AP Ventures and hydrogen. Um, as far as my background is concerned, I, I'm an engineer by training. At, uh, I then worked in the automotive industry um, for Ford for close to 20 years, uh, five years in Europe. But the majority of my career with Ford was spent in the United States, in Detroit. Um, I did a, a variety of different roles, none of them involving engineering, um, mainly finance and strategy, uh, focused in particular on Asia Pacific. Um, and when I left Ford in 2008, I was running their America's procurement organization, uh, responsible for about $50 billion per year of automotive component purchases. Um, I then joined a mining company, Anglo-American, which is a large diversified mining organization, um, where I focused again on procurement before being asked to run the marketing and market development organization for their precious metals group. And that's really the link to AP Ventures. Um, the precious metals group was primarily responsible for selling those materials to automotive companies the use as catalysts in the exhaust systems. Um, and it was clear as part of the energy transition that the future of companies involved in supplying internal combustion exhaust systems is somewhat short lived in the uh, longer scheme of things. And what I was really tasked with, what I was searching for, was what would be the future use of these materials in a decarbonized world? And what role could a mining company play in rather than responding to, but leading the energy transition? And what role could it position itself to be a leader in decarbonization? So that was the focus really that kicked off uh, AP Ventures. Um, we started by becoming a corporate venture capital company within Anglo-American. And then subsequently spun out in 2018 into an independent organization. So that's enough about me and a bit about background about AP Ventures. Let me turn it over to Miriam uh, to talk a little bit about herself. Thank you, Andrew. Hi, everyone. My name is Miriam Sharif, and uh, thank you so much for for having me on this podcast. It's a it's a new it's a first one for me. So thanks again for that. Um, so my background is also in engineering. I, um, I, I'm an energy and a mechanical engineer and um, actually came today to do a team about sustainability quite late in my engineering um, studies. But the last year of my, of my course, I did realize like the importance of, uh, of how the interrelated energy sources are impacting on the climate, et cetera. So I, uh, I did, I did really want to have a career in this sector, and that's how um, I decided to, to, to start off a, um, a career in consulting 
uh, first for the United Nations Environmental Program, where I managed a bunch of uh, program um, programs for them in in um, yeah in clean tech transfer between North and South. So um, I don't know if you you're familiar with that, but there's a whole framework of um, trying to protect uh, the environment. And then you, you have a few um, techniques that you can implement. So we were responsible for transferring those from North to South and then um, uh, worked a bit in, uh, in, in, in incubators um, for, for great companies. Um, and, and really realized that, you know, working in this topic from the public policy point of view, it's, um, you, you are able to implement a lot of things and influence a lot of things, but it's true that it's maybe a different way, a more effective way to do it sector point of view. So that's why I did an MBA in London and, um, and, uh, and joined AP Ventures right after that to uh, invest in companies in the energy transition. Thank you. Uh, Charlie, then over to you. Sure. Hi, everyone, and thanks for having me. Uh, so my name is Charlie Clark, and I'm an investment and portfolio manager at AP Ventures. So my role is uh, largely making, uh, involved in making the new new deals, so the, the execution of deals, and then also the management of those deals post-investment and how to get value out of them. So my background is slightly different to both Andrew and Merriam. I studied natural sciences at Durham for my undergrad. A lot of that was climate change focus, so learning about uh, climates within the quaternary, and also previous to that across Earth's history, you know, the roles of tectonic plates and ocean currents and other factors such as orbits in influencing climate, and then how to measure that climate change and, and what the anthrop anthropogenic impact has been. So I then left my undergrad and did four years at EY and St. Young in advisory work. Uh, so that was interesting, but what I missed, I guess, was a real tangible link to science and being able to apply an understanding of science uh, to specific uh, decision making. Mm -hmm. So I then went back, back to university, I actually went back to Imperial. So I did a, a master's here in 2015, 2016, which is metals and energy finance, which is run by Professor Buchanan. So that was a very, very interesting course. And in, uh, and Andrew mentioned earlier uh, the precious metals. You know, the core the course had a heavy focus on platinum group metals, so very relevant uh, to the hydrogen economy. As part of that course, we even visited some of the mines that mine you know, the platinum, the palladium, and rhodium, etc. They're based in South Africa, so that was a really really incredible experience. Um, I really enjoyed that year, and I also went to lots of lectures and events while I was there, run by the Grantham School of Climate Change which was great, and also the, the, the Energy Futures Lab. So I still attend a few of those, uh, a few of those events. Following my master's then, I, I worked for about two years in investment bank in natural resources, mainly with mining companies, um, and really kind of learned uh, about finance, how to value a company, um, which was great. And I realized three things. You know, firstly, I wanted to be evaluating new technologies associated with climate change and a lower carbon future. Um, and secondly, I wanted something that tied the application of science with financial understanding and really how to make a profitable business. Um, and then also how to realize the value inflection points associated with a new technology to making it commercially viable and something which you know, goes from early stage lab to something which is on the market. So venture capital uh, fund focused on sustainable hard technology is a very good way uh, to do that. And that then led me to AP Ventures. Perfect. Thank you so much, Charlie. Um, I'm glad to see that AP Ventures has some imperial uh, representation <laughs> at the firm. Um, and to those listening, the, that probably sounded like three very technical backgrounds. And Jamie himself also has a very technical background. But do not worry, I am here as the middleman to ensure that all our listeners, whether you are listening because you have an interest in climate change or hydrogen specifically, will follow along. Um, so on that note, to get started, why don't we talk a little bit about why we are talking about hydrogen? What is the hype about and why set up a venture capital firm dedicated to investing in technology companies across the hydrogen value chain? Um, Charlie, maybe since you left off, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. And, um, you know, I think the opportunity with hydrogen is, you know, at the moment, it's, a, it's actually quite a large market. So it's a 100 million ton per year market. 
but most of the production is currently uh, done at where it's then used. So it's largely used in ammonia production and also the, the refining of petrochemical feedstock. So you'll have your supply of green of, sorry, of hydrogen um, at the point of use. And that's largely because hydrogen is quite hard to compress, uh, store and transport to its kind of end use. So that's the first point. The second point um, is that it's uh, the fact that largely the amount of um, hydrogen that's being produced at the moment has a large fossil fuel component associated with it. So it's largely comes from natural gas. And as a consequence of that, in the reactions associated with, with, with the natural gas, you produce lots of CO2. So yes, you get a hydrogen, but, but the carbon intensity associated with that is high. You then combine those two factors with the fact that when you use hydrogen to produce energy, you the only byproduct which you get is water. So that's obviously in, incredibly powerful in creating a decarbonized world. So what you essentially need, need to take is a commodity that is established as a product, but is very nascent in, in terms of making it a globally traded commodity, say with oil or natural gas. Um, for an end use, which has large applications to create a decarbonized society. So if you put those all together, there's a large amount of opportunity which exists through you know, across the value chain in the production of hydrogen of low carbon hydrogen, the kind of the midstream where you compress, you store and you transport it and get it to market. And then in the end use application stage where you're able to generate energy either through fuel cells or through combustion um, and then create a you know where there's, where there's no carbon emissions that are associated with that so that's at a high level yeah so let's maybe then focus on the use the end use of hydrogen because i guess that's probably where when most people are talking about it they're talking about its use right so where do you guys see it really being used and i'm a little a little bit skeptical about some of the transport uses there's a lot of kind of small vehicles um, touted as being run on hydrogen and that doesn't really make an awful lot of sense to me so where do you guys see it making sense maybe i'll pick up and then uh, charlie and then you can jump in i mean charlie touched on it um today presently there's a huge market in in hydrogen but it's um it's made out from fossil fuels principally uh, natural gas but also coal so the first use for low carbon hydrogen, that which is made from renewable energy sources by splitting water, is to replace the carbon intensive processes that are used today to make that hydrogen. And that hydrogen then goes on to be used in petrochemical industry and in, in ammonia production. But the first use, and this is a very large market, $100 billion a year, is to decarbonize existing uses for hydrogen by using renewable energy rather than fossil fuels. From there, you see incremental uses, new applications for hydrogen where it can replace existing fossil fuels. You mentioned mobility, and certainly it very much depends on whether hydrogen will be used or not on the duty cycle of that mobility application. How is the vehicle or the transportation mode used? Um, Hydrogen is found and now dominates uh, the material handling market, for example. So for forklift trucks in warehouses, for e-fulfillment centers, etc., uh, hydrogen-powered forklift trucks are the dominant power source. And that's because the duty cycle of those particular vehicles is particularly suited to hydrogen. They use 24-7. It's an in interior environment, so you can't have any emissions. And you want to use the assets, you want to use the forklifts uh, as much as you possibly can. Accordingly, using hydrogen where you can refuel or recharge the um, electric motors within the material handling, handling devices within minutes rather than um, hours, as you would have to do with batteries, it's very well suited to hydrogen. And that's a sort of new application beyond traditional applications in the mobility sector. Other duty cycles that are particularly suited for hydrogen would be heavy duty applications. So you think uh, intercity coaches and buses, as well as um, even transit buses with, used within an urban environment. Again, where the utilization factor is absolutely critical, the commercial application of an asset to move 
passengers around in an urban environment, the operators require very fast uh, turnaround times. So they don't want them sitting on a charging point for hours when they could be moving passengers around cities or between cities. So that scale of uh, operation, that duty cycle, is very well suited to hydrogen, particularly because of the, the amount of time that um, they would otherwise have to be charged if they were battery electric um, vehicles. And then you get into other uh, large scale mobility applications such as shipping, uh, heavy duty off-road transportation, etc. Again, where the energy requirements are large and um, the operator is very commercially minded. So those are the mobility applications that we see uh, emerging rapidly. Um, you're probably familiar with Flix Mobility. Uh, they recently announced their plans on hydrogen powered intercity coaches, for example, for exactly these reasons. Um, they find that uh, their view is that hydrogen will be a much more suitable uh, energy uh, carrier for the coaches that their operators use. Uh, outside of mobility, applications for hydrogen tend to be in the chemical and uh, heat intensive um, industries that also need to decarbonize. So um, think about uh, steel production, for example, where uh, coking coal can be replaced by hydrogen for the reduction of iron ore. Um, in the chemical industry for recombining uh, green hydrogen or low carbon hydrogen with uh, captured carbon in to produce low um, carbon fuels and, and uh, fuels as well as um, chemical products and plastic precursors is another use of low carbon hydrogen. So we see the existing industries reducing their carbon footprint by using hydrogen from renewable sources, new applications in certain segments of mobility, but also in industries that have high heat requirements as well as replacement of carbon intensive petrochemical based um, processes as well. So those are the areas and we would anticipate that over the next few decades, hydrogen will represent about 20% of the energy mix globally. And that's where the interest comes from, a replacement, direct replacement for many fossil fuel applications by harnessing renewable energy uh, and, and using hydrogen as the vector um, to transport that into both different locations, but also different sectors for its application. Miriam or Charlie, would you like to add to any of that? Well, just perhaps to expand on the point uh, which you made, I think I think when people think of hydrogen, I think they automatically think of the end use, say, is in a, in a fuel cell, but that's not the only, um, you know, as a, I guess, a zero emission production uh, energy source, but that's not the only uh, use case for hydrogen. There's a whole piece in the middle, I guess, in the you know, prolonging existing business models where hydrogen essentially can be combined with CO2 and you can then produce. So if it's a carbon neutral methanol you know, for shipping or a carbon neutral aviation fuel you know, for use in planes, there's a whole piece here where hydrogen can be used as you know, over the short to medium term to prolong existing business models, as well as then being um, the kind of energy vector of choice for the zero emission. So essentially it can, it can act in both the decarbonizing um, way and then also zero, zero emissions way. I don't think that decarbonization um, phase is, 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 is fully appreciated or understood. I'm reassured to hear that the first, when I asked about the, what hydrogen gets used for, the first answer is, well, it needs to be used to decarbonize current hydrogen production because a lot of what you do, well, what I see in media is about new hydrogen production and new hydrogen use, sorry. Um, and I think quite often people forget about the carbon associated with current product, hydrogen production. So it was it was good to hear that. Um, should we then dive into then the supply side? I think we've got a, quite a good overview of the demand side, but the supply side, what, where is all this green hydrogen going to come from? And I guess the one of the concerns that people have about production is that right now it's relatively inefficient. Yeah, where is all this green hydrogen going to come from? Um, and what are the current kind of roadblocks Sure. So I can I can start on that one. Uh, so if, if we look at the hydrogen production today, as I said, it's largely comes from natural gas, uh, but essentially water is, is it can be the other starting block for the production of hydrogen, and that's through splitting it 
uh, in an electrochemical cell to produce hydrogen and oxygen. So at the moment, say, if you imagine a seesaw, kind of it's, uh, the production of hydrogen is much more weighted towards the natural gas side, and only a very small amount is, is currently done via um, via water as a, as a resource. The way which we see it is you will need, uh, well, we, we view green, green hydrogen as rather being low carbon hydrogen, the fact that you will, to make the user case for hydrogen competitive, you will need large amounts of low carbon hydrogen, and we include uh, blue and turquoise hydrogen in that. So we see nat natural gas as being an important, still important part of that over the sh short to medium term until there's enough supply from green hydrogen that's come online. But for natural gas to have a future for the production of hydrogen, that the carbon capture element is very important. And you know, for blue hydrogen, where there's still methane reformation, but the CO2 is captured. And there's important factors here. So firstly, the purity that CO2 is produced in the process. You know, at the moment, the purity ranges from 30% you know, up to around 80%. If that's going to be captured and stored underground or used in industry, it has to then be purified up to around 100% to then make that sequestration or use case as economic as possible. So also with natural gas and be able to then store the carbon underground, the geography and geology is very important. So there needs to be access to both uh, CO2 sequestration and also the associated infrastructure. So we have a portfolio company um, called Zeg Power that's based in Norway that produces a very pure blue hydrogen and also a very pure uh, CO2 stream. And it has a relationship with the Northern Lights projects so of the off offshore CCUS facility where we then looking to store that co2 so staying with the natural gas and the you know, the lower carbon route and uh, a technology that can uh, address those points in terms of the purity of carbon and the geology aspect associated with the co2 is turquoise hydrogen where you can react the natural gas with a catalyst that then produces uh, a pure hydrogen and a solid carbon stream and the solid carbon uh, in principle, is then easier to, to store, dispose of, and, and lock away then for hundreds and thousands of years. There's also the option of, of using that solid carbon in other industries, uh, for instance, you know, carbon black in tires or with graphite in, in the anodes of batteries. This technology is still quite early, uh, and we have two investments in this space, one based in the US and one based in Australia. So then moving over to then um, water then as the, as the starting source for hydrogen, where water is split um, in, an, in an electrochemical cell. So currently, this represents a very small proportion of the total global hydrogen production. But the amount of, the amount of announcements that are coming out, you know, particularly in Europe, um, also the US and the Middle East and Australia, you know, across the globe, um, a large amount of uh, energy demand um, is predicted to come from green hydrogen across different end-use applications. I think both for the decarbonisation phase and also then for the zero emissions phase. You know, as you mentioned, there are several barriers to entry or kind of barriers um, that are stopping kind of the more widespread adoption. Cost is important, both from a capex and an opex perspective, um, and getting the, the, the cost of the hydrogen down to around the cost of blue hydrogen. So that'll be the reformation of, of, of methane plus the carbon capture element. On the capex side, it's largely scale, which is one of the key constraints and, and bottlenecks. We're starting to see a lot of scale being planned, uh, which is likely to help kind of push costs down. And on the OPEX front, uh, which is around kind of 75% of the cost of green hydrogen, as you mentioned, it's, it's, it's important to get the energy associated with the production of a unit of green hydrogen as low as possible, that kilowatt hour per kilo of hydrogen. And this can be done in a variety of ways. So looking to actually you know, lower the electrical energy requirement. Um, it could be looking to change some of the electrical requirement with heat um, and, and then recycle some of the heat that's produced in the reaction to then lower the overall net cost. And then also in many other ways, one of which is also looking to produce a variety of associated products as well. So to lower that cost. And then the second constraint is capacity. So at, at the moment, there, there isn't that much scale that's in the market. Um, however, we're seeing a lot of companies now 
looking to increase the capacity so up to a gigawatt and beyond you know, there's several companies that are looking to have kind of five gigawatts plus by around 2024 2025 and this has been largely driven by both governments and companies that are looking to deploy um, and pair that with renewable energy and every week now kind of there seems to be a new project that is you know around hundreds of megawatts or gigawatts that's either being posed investigated studied or or, or planned and i think that the last constraint is really on the renewable energy supply um and it's you know, very encouraging that kind of more and more renewable energy if it's um kind of uh, onshore wind offshore wind floating offshore wind kind of solar floating solar geothermal and there's lots of uh, there's lots of energy that's coming on 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 online and this is this is very important for developing the hydrogen economy and it's being i think smart about the end use applications that's that this available energy is being used for to best demonstrate how hydrogen can be used to achieve a net zero you know and some of those which which andrew mentioned um, for instance, around a demanding duty cycle, and it really is it really sectors that are hard to abate with other, you know, with other means of energy. So, say, uh, with straight uh, electrification. In terms of the, yeah, so in terms of the supply side, then I guess we see it as a, you know, we, you know, we see it as a seesaw. So we see that seesaw increasingly move away from natural gas to using water as a as a as a starting block, and. I guess what we also see, which is interesting in, in the supply of green hydrogen, is increasingly energy companies, when previously they'd be looking to produce, say, just renewable, um, say, green electrons, they're increasingly looking to produce green molecules as part of the projects as well. So rather than having a dedicated um, uh, offshore wind, you would have an offshore wind plus hydrogen at varying levels so providing optionality and a chance to essentially increase the value of those green green electrons i'll, I'll probably pause there i know and andrew or miriam if there's anything further which you'd like to add i just think pretty comprehensive that and uh, i i think that um trans transition over time from you know, low carbon alternatives to um what's typically described as green hydrogen, zero um, emission uh, hydrogen is an important distinction to make. Uh, we have a philosophy that you know, is one of inclusion and the use of existing assets. So we work with you know, many partners. Um, some of those have existing assets in the traditional fossil fuel industry, and we see great opportunity to repurpose those assets and in doing this, they're doing to actually hasten the transition to lower carbon alternatives. Before we leave the, the topic on the on the roadblocks, I think there are like two more points that I'd like to make that I think would be interesting as well to, to add to the to mm -hmm. the view that Andrew and Charlie has have given, if that's all right. So on, on top of what, what has been has been um, developed quite a bit uh, in, in the conversation so far about um, you know bringing the cost down and, and, and having those uh, that renewable energy capacity installed, um, which I, I think it's important to to note that we at AP Ventures definitely look into those and and seeing trying to find those technologies that are going to make this value chain more effective. And efficient, whether it is by uh, looking for new types of fuel cells that can reduce the cost in the manufacturing of the of the systems, or uh, novel uses, uh, novel novel hydrogen carriers in order to reduce the cost for uh, taking hydrogen from point A to point B. Um, there are another other a couple of points that, that that I wanted to make. For instance, um, one of the important uh, roadblocks that are still in the hydrogen value chain is, is the infrastructure. So for you to maybe think in the future of having an, a hydrogen car or trucks running on hydrogen, you would need to have a very large amount of refueling stations that are disseminated along um, transit roads. And for, for you to be able to, to have those, there's a, a massive amount of infrastructure investment that has to happen for, for you to be able to see this uh, this future coming to to being, and and this is one of the one of the roadblocks that that we still see and that is still being uh, tackled by governments as well as big enterprises where they try and uh, and invest in these uh, in consortiums. Oh, 
as countries. The other one is, is the perceived safety of hydrogen. So we all have in mind um, these, um, these images of, of hydrogen being a very explosive gas. So uh, having that in your car might not seem like the, the safest um, bet. And, um, and there, so, so there is still a, a perception of, uh, of hydrogen not being a safe solution. And that's not necessarily true in the sense that, um, for instance, the, the Hindenburg accident, which happened at the beginning of the of last century, which is the one that is often um, th that is not often quoted as, as uh, an example of hydrogen not being safe. That's actually because a diesel burned for a long time, not necessarily the hydrogen, but it was ignited by hydrogen. So, so having in mind that um, hydrogen as a gas might not sound as as safe, but but actually when you look at the, the science of it, it, it's it's not necessarily proven. I think that's a, an important point to make as well. Yeah, thank you. And can I ask a follow-up question then on, on the infrastructure side, which is if you only describe this complex network of refueling stations and pipelines to ship all the hydrogen everywhere, how much of our current fueling existing infrastructure infrastructure can we repurpose? And or is it going to have to be a whole new set of infrastructure that gets that gets built? Um, because I guess that's pretty key to solving this kind of chicken and egg problem of you can use hydrogen, but there's no infrastructure and there's no infrastructure because no one's using that type of thing. Yeah, it's a great question. Um I guess if you have to use, there's a lot of, you can reuse. Um, and we, we look into technologies that would allow you to actually reuse a lot of what's already existing. So for instance, if you think about hydrogen being linked into a liquid if in order for you to be able to reuse um, the current infrastructure, infrastructure that's very much based on liquid fuels, um, you would be able to reuse everything that's already existing. And for instance, there's a company in our portfolio that does, that does just that, they take hydrogen, they link it into an oil and they're able to transport the oil uh, from point A to B, therefore using all of the existing infrastructure, be it the tankers, the pipelines for liquids um, in order for you to, to, to transport the hydrogen. And then you can unbind it from the oil at the point of use. So that, that company, for instance, is called Hydrogenius. And it's, um, it's an exciting technology that we found that allows you to reuse what's already existing. Um, now, in terms of if, if you think about using hydrogen or transporting hydrogen as a gas, then you would have to think about um, filtration and purification technologies that allows you to, for instance, think we, we could mix hydrogen within a, a stream of methane, and then you would just need to find a solution in order to filter the hydrogen out of the methane pipeline. Um, and that would therefore allow you to use what's currently in use at the moment. So that, so to answer your questions, um, I think technology would allow us to reuse what's already existing, and some of the technology we see actually do that. Um, but there is still a lot to be built. Yeah, I, I, I just to add to that as well on the just the overall supply chain of you know, the, the the critical metals that are required for the hydrogen value chain. So that value chain or the, you know, the, the, the value chain associated with those metals, so platinum, palladium, ruthenium, that already exists and it's very, you know, that's, um, that mining techniques is very well understood um, and it's been mined for, you know, for many, many years. If you then contrast that, say, with the electric vehicle or kind of the, um, you know, the battery space, a lot of those, the value chains associated, say, with lithium mining um, is a very much early stage um, and the a lot of the consequences uh, associated with that are, are quite poorly understood compared to say platinum group mining or platinum group metal mining and then also on the on the recycling side of that value chain so again the platinum group metal recycling is very well understood uh, this is contrasted with um, say that you know the metals associated with a lithium ion battery so the lithium the cobalt the nickel the manganese those are it's quite hard to uh, to recycle those well at the moment or commercially recycle those well so that's that's something where I think the hydrogen industry is quite differentiated at the moment from the say the EV space yeah so so then maybe sticking with the the kind of hardware or the the yeah this this theme of infrastructure if we zoom out and i and you take your kind of typical view of venture capital which would 
be kind of software focused. I, you know, you think of Facebook investors in Silicon Valley or software investors in Europe. How does then when you move into venture capital, but we're talking about infrastructure within um, countries for refueling, and then we're also talking about these massive industries like the extractive mining industries, how do you then apply a venture capital model to something that's really hardware and hard tech based? And I guess if I, now that we're kind of more on the investment side, can follow up on that a bit, adding the question of given the long-term nature of hardware investments, what is your investment horizon and what phase do you like your companies to be at when you choose them for for your portfolio? Maybe I can start with that and then we can follow up with the, um, the point about hardware versus uh, software. So uh, you know, AP Ventures is very much focused on technology solutions to the constraints associated with the hydrogen value chain. So, what are the technologies that will unlock the growth of the hydrogen industry? Who are the companies that are involved in that? And how can we facilitate um, their growth and development? And we recognize that those constraints exist along the entire value chain from some of the production technologies that Charlie spoke about earlier, the midstream, which is about the storage, transportation, delivery of hydrogen, as well as the end applications. All of them have certain constraints that can be addressed through technology innovation technology development and we see that that innovation that development taking place at various um, locations sometimes it's within universities sometimes it's within companies and we find the teams that are, are engaged in that work and assist them in developing their companies now it takes time uh, our fund is um, a 12-year fund, which is slightly longer than a typical venture capital fund. So we have a slightly longer time horizon. We have the opportunity to extend that to 14 years at uh, our election. So we have a, a long dated view. What we see though is with the technologies as they make um, progress, as they start to demonstrate the value that they can create, that more and more investors become interested that have perhaps longer time horizons than we do. And there is opportunities for value to be created along that journey. So you start at day one, you don't necessarily wait until the end of year 12 to see the opportunity to, for value to have been created. And new homes and new owners emerge who can curate and develop the companies within our portfolio over time. Um, so it's a, a collaborative approach. It's a collaboration with the innovators, but it's also with a team of other investors who have a strong, typically strategic interest in the development of the technology. I mean, Charlie, do you want to pick up a little bit further on the hardware versus software distinction? Yeah, sure. And uh, I guess can I can talk to the three three main differences so i think firstly on the technology readiness so software it's generally easier to produce a minimal viable product and which you can take to market and test with some of your customer base and it's uh it's easier to get traction and, and sales in the market so if you look at um, a series a uh, financing which is a relatively kind of early stage level of financing um, of a company for a software business um, you, you would probably expect that company to be developing revenue um, and the metrics which you would look at to, to kind of analyze it would be very different from a hardware company. So for software, you'd be looking at annual recurring revenue, uh, the customer, or the revenue retention, uh, the customer conversion, uh, gross margin, which, which would be quite high for a, a software as a service business um, and customer acquisition costs. And then, you know, the spending associated with um, with raising of the capital would, would also be different there. So you'd probably have a high advertising cost or higher advertising costs associated with the capital which you're raising. For hardware, the technology development generally takes much longer and the journey to getting a first marketable product um, tends to be longer. Um, it requires um, a fair amount of love and attention and, and quite a lot of strategic thinking. So an example of this is we have a, um, a technology 
uh, well, the company's called Infinium. It produces a sustainable aviation fuel. So essentially you take CO2 and you take green hydrogen and it produces a drop-in replacement for jet fuel. Um, and you have to be quite strategic in terms of like, okay, what partners are going to be uh, beneficial to growing this business? So in, this, in their latest round of fundraising, which was their Series B fundraising, they raised $70 million. And the leads of that round were uh, Next Era Energy, uh, for the supply of the green electrons and then also amazon um, and they're looking at it as a, as a potential source um, you know, to decarbonize their, their existing operations um, so it, it's it's quite fun to think okay who who's um you know who's going to be a good fit for the company who uh, which companies might might make sense at this stage which company is going to help the uh, the pathway and the trajectory of the technology also i think what's important um in terms of in evaluating the technology so it's less about say how much customer traction you're getting although you know that is important or it's, it's less about the revenue it's more about how differentiated the products are to the market so for, for example with with electrolyzers it would be more about the amount of energy it requires to split the water you know can you leverage existing business models can you leverage existing uh, can it say the fuel cell industry can you take kind of the scale that's been achieved there and apply it to to electrolyzers can you can you split the amount of energy that's required between both electricity and also kind of by product heat um, so it, it's those kind of it's those kind of things and saying okay if this technology was to be successful where's its differentiating factor and in which end markets is it most is it most applicable for so you, so it's it's very much it requires um quite a, a detail a detailed understanding of the hydrogen value chain in order to understand essentially how best to value it the second point i'd say is in terms of scale and and the rate of scale that can that can that can be achieved is 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 different so um scaling technology uh for software is, is generally much easier because say if you've developed say an app then the the barrier to receiving that technology might be a laptop or a phone or or, you know, or a kind of you know, an app store so the you know, the scale of the technology is is can be can be much much faster with hard tech it's different as you're developing a physical product um, so the scale associated with that takes you know, careful planning and execution of the supply chain, the component verification, the testing, assembly, etc. It also generally requires a large capital investment, either for the for the tooling of the equipment to produce the, you know, the units, or in the actual, say, uh, in the in the equipment itself. So, for instance, if you're producing a, you know, a, um, a sustainable aviation fuel plant, then the plant associated with that is is going to require quite quite a lot of capex. So scale generally takes longer to to achieve, and I guess the the value inflection points is my third point for commercialization is also different as well. It kind of touches on the other two points, but um, you know those value inflection points can be on the technical side. They they can be on the customer side, on the on the supply side, on the on the partnership side. Um, and, and generally, um, you know, and a partnership can be both to investment, so which investors you brought in to to the company, and then also on, on the value chain side in terms of it might be for the supply of green electrons, or it, it might be also for the offtake. So if you bring in an investor um, or a partner that is interested in, say, buying a lot of the systems or product which you're producing. So the value inflection points are different as well. Andrew or, or Mary, I'm not, I'm not sure if there's anything further which, which you'd like to add. I think I might steal the word in, in interest of time because I do have a question that I'm very interested in getting your opinion on. So kind of bringing together what Andrew said with what you just finished kind of saying, Charlie, in you're operating in a space that where there's a great deal of innovation and where technology is developing quite rapidly, but that there's also a certain amount of uncertainty. How do you distinguish or decide between investing in something that you find interesting and that hydrogen could potentially um, provide a great uh, resource for and something that will actually provide healthy returns? Maybe I'll jump in on this one and uh, Andrew, Charlie, whenever uh, you, you can also add to it. So um, I guess the way we, we think about these investments is that at the, at the very start of our analysis, and uh, we think 
we try to answer the question, do we see this investment get providing or generating a 10x? So the, the financial returns and the financial healthy financial returns is definitely um, what we're looking for. So we'll, we'll do very comprehensive modeling around the, um, the business plan that the, com the company will provide, projections, et cetera, in order to, to confront this model and what we think the company can achieve to our objective as an investor to return, uh, to, to bring healthy return to our investors. Then we have embedded in our investment process a series of um, mechanisms in order to, to challenge our view. So we, um, we, for, for us to, to come to this uh, modeling model that we discussed with our investment committee, um, we, we ask ourselves very actively, well, what do you need to believe in order for this vision that you're presenting, how, what do you need to believe for it to become reality? And we really go into long conversations around this topic. Then we also, um, think actively about our biases. So uh, whether it is a military bias where we, we identify with the funding team, where we, we as, as you said, we, we think this is a, a very cool technology. Um, we, we really try actively to remove those cognitive biases in order for us to take the best decision. And so that's in our investment process. But then at a later stage, we also really look for actively for ways to de-risking our um, our investments. So for it being through um, trying to, to to find synergies with other portfolio companies or some of our investors in order to put together projects in order to bring those technology to market faster. This type of initiatives um, allow us to help the company come to this uh, preferred scenario at a faster speed. So. Um, do you, do you want do you want to add anything to that, Andrew or Charlie? I would just perhaps say team is also um, very very important and, and something which we consider carefully. So, and we want I guess founders that can obviously understand their technology well and understand the different and can clearly articulate the differentiation versus the market, but then who can also sell the vision and say, well, this is where we, this might be where we are at the moment. But hey, look, in five years time, 10 years time, this is what the technology can unlock. And this is how our technology and our company is going to be right in the center of it. So I think um, team is, is someone is, is, is something that we look at very, very carefully as well. Yeah, thank you for that. And I like I, this is kind of part of the uh, or the bit about the bit about venture capital that also attracts me is that you are helping your portfolio companies more than just in giving them direct capital and that the kind of promotion of synergies within portfolios and within networks is feels a lot more active than um, than just giving cash. Um, so yeah, I really like that model. I do realize that we've only got you guys for a couple more minutes, so maybe um, I will move on to the very last question, which is a bit more of a personal question. Um, and we'd like to each ask each of you if you would be able to tell us about a book that you found either particularly insightful or inspiring um, with regards to your work or just with regards to the kind of sustainability or climate um, conversation in general. Um, maybe let's start with Andrew. Yeah, it's a, a great question. Makes you think about what you've, uh, what you've read, what you should have read, what you are reading. Um, for me, um, over the last few years, at least, uh, a book titled Skin in the Game is one that I found particularly uh, thoughtful, thought provoking um, by uh, Nassim Keller. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's just every page seems to have uh, another thought that I find you know, myself putting down the book and thinking about my own experience and uh, challenging the way I think about uh, opportunity, resilience, and um, you know, the, the purpose. Uh, but um, we are pursuing each day. So highly recommend it, skin in the game. Well, I can go next. Um, so I'd say if you're looking to get into venture, uh, then Venture Deals um, by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelssohn is, is very, very good. So it's written from the, from the perspective that you're a founder of a company and how to make sure you, you don't get outsmarted by the likes of AP Ventures, but it's it can also be um, very much applied to the other side. So essentially, it, it it takes you it takes you through how to structure a good deal um, that makes sense for the company, uh, for the investors, uh, and for shareholders. 
and all the uh, all the um, I guess more of the legal side and the structuring and that's something which I found incredibly useful um, coming from perhaps more of a um, uh, looking at how to value companies and evaluate a company and from a science based um, background to actually thinking okay what makes an attractive investment it goes to the you know the uh, comment which you made earlier what makes an attractive investment um, rather than just being cool technology how can we structure this so that you know uh, how you can mitigate some of our downside we can maximize our upside um because i guess uh uh it's it's key for you know, that initial when you make an investment that's kind of half half the battle and then post investment and the realizing the value through the portfolio management and being quite hands-on that's the second part but that's made much easier if you've initially structured the deal quite attractively um, and, and, and and quite a well thought out manner thank you charlie that's yeah that does sound like an interesting perspective because i guess the other thing that's interesting about venture capital is that the founders choose their shareholders whereas in public markets that's obviously not the case so yeah i will also i'd also like to read that one thanks um i was actually thinking about Factfulness uh, from Hans Rosling. Um, and that's a, an interesting book because basically they take uh, questions that, that ask a sample number of people about, um, you know, things like, um, do you think poverty has progressed or regressed over the last 50 years, et cetera? And, um, and people get the, their answers to these, these questions typically wrong, which uh, wouldn't, shouldn't be so. Um, and then they explain to you about, um, you know, biases and, and how our mind have the, the, this uh, tendency to distort a bit reality and seeing things as going worse than they actually are going. So, um, so I think it's, uh, and especially in, in the day that we're living in, um, it's quite a good book to kind of get your facts straight and, um, and, uh, and think a bit differently about the world. Thank you, Miriam. I would definitely agree. I think we've spoken about factfulness um, and Hans Rosling quite a quite a bit on our course and the fact that it's a really important read to remind ourselves that in the space of climate change, especially, it's not always going downhill. Now, we are about to wrap up, but I'm actually going to put Jamie on the spot a little bit because oh. he always asks those questions to his guests, but I don't feel like you have been asked what book you would recommend anyone to read. Ah, yeah, okay, that is on the spot. Um, one book that does come to mind, actually, is the Bill Gates um, book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. I think that's, a, um, I read it, and it's a very good book for somebody who maybe doesn't have a technical background um, to actually get a grasp on the main blocks of what is driving climate change, and then indeed where Bill Gates sees the main areas required for innovation. And he does talk about hydrogen, so um, it's also worth using that as maybe an introduction into hydrogen, and then and then going on AP Ventures website, yeah. obviously, and, and learning even more there. So that's <laughs> not what I would say. Great. And I will, I must admit, and thank you guys for keeping the conversation in a in a tone and a language that everyone could follow along. I at least managed to, to follow along. So I think our listeners will really appreciate that while still keeping the interest of uh, the listeners with a more technical background. So on that note, we will not steal any more of your time um, and send out a huge thank you for joining us today um, and speaking to us about AP Ventures and Hydrogen. And thank you for having me on the Green Minds podcast. <laughs> yeah, thank you thank very you. much. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thanks, that was a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, Jamie. So that was a really interesting conversation. I'm very happy that we managed to get the three of them on the podcast. And so thank you for, for organizing all of that. Um, but I yeah, wondered what your reflections were after that conversation. Yeah, I think one thing that really kind of sparked my, my thoughts was this dichotomy or split between blue hydrogen and green hydrogen and the role that they both have in decarbonizing um, our energy systems in the future and the weight that blue hydrogen might take in the future um, and if that will take space away from green hydrogen and potentially cause us to come over reliant on blue hydrogen in decarbonizing um, our energy systems and with that then how do we factor in the potential transition risk that will come along with investing in blue hydrogen rather than, than green hydrogen because I think there will be a transitional risk that needs to be factored in when valuing blue hydrogen focused companies. Yeah, I agree. I think when you, if if we look to 2050 and you think that by 2050, you want to have all hydrogen being produced 
um, and, and it will be green hydrogen. How do you, um, I mean, that's less than 30 years away. Who's going to invest millions and millions and millions of pounds in a massive infrastructure project for blue hydrogen to only run it for 20 years? And if it's oil and gas companies that are doing it, I don't, that's not their mindset. They've never, they've never been, been happy with running something for 20 years, right? You think about most of the, the North Sea oil fields have run for at least 20 years longer than they were ever planned for in the start. So I don't think they'll be satisfied with that kind of curtailment of, of their assets, really. Um, so I think that's a very valid point. And I also think that on this, on this piece about blue hydrogen, if we are still wedding ourselves to natural gas as a, as a, a feedstock, how sustainable really is that? And how much does that actually get away? And my other concern with that is a, a bit more of a technical one, which is for blue hydrogen to really be low carbon, you have to have effective carbon capture and storage. And there's no project in the world right now that is capturing 99% of the carbon dioxide that comes out of um, a flu stack. So yeah, I think there's both, a, there's an economics issue and there's a technical issue of um, for blue hydrogen. And my, one of my reflections also was on the, the kind of infrastructure compatibility um, piece. Um, I just don't I, don't, I don't know how valid it is to claim that, that there is lots of existing infrastructure that we can use, reuse with hydrogen. Um, if you're using pure hydrogen, I know there's really not a lot of, of infrastructure. And the point that was made in the podcast was that, yeah, you would put it into some kind of oil, which would then allow you, or, or a different type of fluid, which would then allow you to use existing infrastructure. So my question then would be, but what is the infrastructure requirement in order to get hydrogen to that state that you can put it in existing infrastructure? And what is the kind of full end-to-end -end picture? There's not much point investing in um, a massive amount of new infrastructure just to use a little bit of old infrastructure. Um, so I'd like to see, I don't know if there are any reports or any kind of analysis done on that, but if anyone's listening that does know of any, please um, point them our way because I'd like to learn more about that. So then the, my next question to you is if you if we had had, I mean, that that 45 minutes that we had with them went super quickly. So if you had more time with them, what would what would one question be that you'd like to ask them? I think what Miriam was speaking about in the end regarding biases is super interesting, especially again in a field where it is changing so rapidly and you're dealing with technology that's that's rather unknown um, and how they address these biases in their investment processes and, and investment decisions, because a bias like representative bias or herd behavior bias is so deeply ingrained in us as humans that they are really hard to address and have become a whole field within behavioral economics now that are looking and studying and how do we nudge people away from, from these or falling into these biases and, and recognizing that we have um, said biases because it can greatly impact the investment decisions that, that we make. So I think it would be incredibly interesting to hear more about the techniques and approaches that they use um, to address these biases and make sure that they, they avoid them. Yeah, that's a yeah, it's a very interesting point. And on the, I would have if I had more time with them. I'm really interested in the relationship with portfolio companies. So, I would really like to delve into really how they are promoting synergies within their portfolio between companies, but then also how what their network as a fund looks like and how they utilize that network to help their um, to help their startup. Uh, well, I would then like to build on that and ask them really, they started off as a CVC, so a corporate venture capital firm and then um, transferred into a venture capital firm. So how much of that strategic arm do they miss by not being a CVC or are they more free to explore synergies and, and avenues that they otherwise might not have been able to had they still been a CVC? Um, but those are two kind of, I think, pretty juicy topics that can be applied to actually probably to lots of other venture capital firms. So I hope that when we get some more on the podcast, we could maybe use those questions um, as the basis of a conversation because yeah, we can dive into some real, real juicy stuff there. You really could. So that wraps up the end of this episode then. And I would just like to thank you, Becca, for being my co-host this week and also for um, reaching out to AP Ventures and, and setting up the interview. It was, uh, I think, a very worthwhile conversation. And I hope um, our viewership also um, feel that way. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. And I definitely learned a lot about hydrogen, which was my main objective with this little project. So thank you for having me on board. Thank you to everyone who tuned in for this week's episode. Next week, Shirin will be hosting and she is speaking with Thomas O'Neill, founder of Universal Owner, and they'll be speaking about why the ESG space needs a Universal Owner revamp. We look forward to seeing you again next week on the Ivy Green Minds podcast.